welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this is a very special episode because we, like so many of you, watched Knives Out this past week. We did! It was the premiere weekend here in the States, and we have thoughts. We were so looking forward to this movie for so long, and we know many of you were and are curious as to our thoughts and would just like to discuss it a little bit further. So we figured this was due a special episode a la our Kenneth Branagh Murder on the Orient Express. We have every intention of doing another one of these when Death on the Nile comes out. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, if people would like to keep making whodunits for the big screen, we would do an episode uh, for all of them. You know, we just we, will, we just don't we just don't have enough. We will happily pop out these special episodes should the powers that be want to put more whodunits on the big or small screen for that matter. So Catherine, what did you think of Knives Out? You know, I don't think it's a masterpiece or something. You know, I mean, I don't think that it's going to go down as, you know, the greatest movie of all time or anything like that. That said, I had incredibly high expectations going into it. Obviously, we've been anticipating this for a long time. And so the biggest risk, I think, was that I was going to be disappointed. And I will say that even for someone with very high expectations, I was delighted. I agree. I completely agree with that statement. I think that it was a tall order for the two of us in particular Mm -hmm. and people such as we. And there are a lot of us, right? Yeah, of course. Our podcast is built on. But there were very high expectations because Ryan Johnson is a really smart writer and director. He's a smart filmmaker and he's done really interesting things with genre before. You know, his first movie was Brick, where he made a really fantastic noir while sending up noirs at the same time. And... I was very hopeful that he would be doing something similar with the whodunit genre in this movie, and I'm happy to report he did. And I think he mainly delivered on that premise of both crafting a modern-day whodunit and also sending it up, or at least fondly, I don't even want to say spoofing it, but... Well, because um, no, it's not. It's Imitating like, uh, it. Right. For, for our Patreon episode, which will also come out this week, we covered two spoofs, basically, two parodies. We covered uh, Murder by Death and we covered Clue. And, you know, they are firmly in the parody camp. Whereas there's a real sincerity to Knives Out. Yeah, it's really interesting. We recorded that Patreon episode recently. It is our most recent episode, and it is currently out on our Patreon site. So if you are interested in hearing our thoughts on Murder by Death and Clue, which are two classic whodunit spoofs of the 70s and 80s, by all means, visit us on our Patreon site if you're not already a patron. So we're at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. One of our big takeaways from that conversation was that Perhaps in our memory, those movies were doing more in terms of crafting an honest-to-goodness, legitimate whodunit than they in fact are, because they're really not. They're just spoofing it, and there's not a real mystery to either of those stories, (laughs) in particular, perhaps Clue. Uh, That's not even fair, really, for both of them. And we were hopeful that that wasn't the case with Knives Out, that there would be more of a straightforward way to appreciate the movie besides any sort of winking 
that was being done about the whodunit genre. And, and it absolutely is. I mean, the puzzle mystery has legs and it stands up to scrutiny. Is it the cleverest, most revolutionary, amazing puzzle mystery I've ever encountered? Of course not. No, but it also, you know, I said this to you earlier, I thought it played very fair. And once you realize what's going on, the clues are all built in. It's really doing a good job at playing by proper whodunit rules. Absolutely. And I think this is the moment in this special episode where I should say, if you do not want to be spoiled... If you haven't watched the movie yet, stop listening now. Right. <laughs> so press pause. Press pause, then go watch the movie and come back and listen to the rest of what we have to say, because we do obviously want to talk a little bit post-solution here. You know, I think, first of all, I was really pleased that very early on, we get this brilliant allusion to the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Mm-hmm. Because we're told that our protagonist of sorts, right, Marta, this nurse character, is the murderer. Right. She accidentally poisons her boss, who is Captain our, Von our, Trapp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Christopher Plummer. Harlan Thromby is his fantastic character name in the movie. We're told sort of via flashback very early on that she accidentally murdered him. And he then realizing he only has 10 minutes to live and not wanting her to go down for his murder because he's so fond of her, uh, fakes a suicide. We well, have this kind he of... He doesn't exactly fake a suicide. He does, in fact, slit his own throat. Yes. He makes what would have been a murder into a suicide. A suicide. He, yes. he crafts a suicide, I guess is a better way of putting it. And from then, it's also, and Ryan Johnson has even mentioned this, one could argue that this is a Columbo reference, right? Because that's how most Columbo episodes were structured, where the audience knew exactly who did it. So it wasn't a whodunit, but a right. how catch them, where you're watching Columbo figure it out, even though you know who the murderer is. Obviously, we have layers of complication beyond that that we get into, but that was cool. But what was really cool is that when we see Marta talking to the inspector played fabulously by Daniel Craig in his best foghorn leghorn voice, which is totally referenced. Benoit Blanc. When we see her telling them what happened, she uses omission to state very simply what she did with Harlan Thromby the night that he died because she has this wonderful problem. Yeah. Her affliction is that she throws up. She just spontaneously pukes anytime she lies. So it's interesting. It is, And it really is, I I think, for Christy fans, a reference to Roger Ackroyd that anyone's going to pick up on right there because she is lying. She's lying by omission, though, when she doesn't tell them the whole truth in that scene and she doesn't puke. So I thought that was an interesting choice because one could argue that she was totally lying in that scene, but by the rules that Christy established in Roger Ackroyd, she isn't really. She's not fabricating. She's omitting. And that is a distinction. No, and also we get some close-up shots of her tennis shoe very early on, on which there is a speck of blood because she, in fact, sees... Harlan Thromby slit his own throat, so the blood flicks at her. And we get a bunch of carefully considered cutaway shots to her shoe. So when she's sitting there in the interrogation with Benoit Blanc, it circles back around because he does know that she's lying the entire time. Yeah. He tells her at the end, oh, well, I knew that you had something to do with it because obviously the second I saw you, I saw the blood on your shoe. Right. And it's like we, the audience, also saw, you know, the clues, again, that's why I think it plays very fair in that you're getting essentially all the information that they have 
as an audience member. Well, we're being told and shown directly. I mean, we don't even need the blood on the shoe, right? Like, no, 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 but you do. But you do need the blood on the shoe to later go back and be like, "Oh, he did know all along." That's why essentially he invites her along as his sidekick, right? Right, in the same way that Poirot does with Doctor Shepard, murder of Roger Ackroyd. Yep. Yeah, no, so it's a really sly and brilliant reference to Roger Ackroyd. He's using that book, I think, in a really clever way. And then the other Christie reference early on that I so appreciated, and one that I haven't really seen in a lot of the press material, honestly, and I don't know if Ryan Johnson specifically referenced the title, but Crooked House. This setup is so Crooked House in that we have this wealthy patriarch of the family and all of his hideous children and somewhat hideous grandchildren <laughs> as well. They're all competing with each other, and they're just grotesque and larger than life. And even the means by which we think, anyway, that he dies is very similar to Crooked House, where he is accidentally injected with the wrong medication by someone who didn't mean to do it. That's totally a Crooked House reference right there. Absolutely. And even the idea that it's a competent, smart young woman who doesn't seem particularly interested in his money, who is the one that ultimately wins. And on top of that, also, if you really think about it, the motive is pretty much the same. I mean, it's not it's not a ballet lesson, but it is. Well, grandpa told me that I couldn't do something. So now, no, it's lucre, though. Yeah, I mean, the motive is ultimately lucre. But in Crooked House, it's far more sinister and weird than that, really. But yeah, I mean, the murderer of Knives Out is actually less of a psychopath. He's more of a pragmatist. How about that? Yeah, he is. And again, we already gave our spoiler warning. So let's just say it's Ransom played to perfection with his many sweaters. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. His name is Hugh. (laughs) One of the more clever little inserts in the whole movie. Yes, that his first name is Hugh, his middle name is Ransom. He goes by Ransom with everyone except the servants, because he forces the servants to call him by his first name, which is such a Christie clue. Again, yes, playing such around a with names clue. and nicknames, Peril at End House, on down through the canon. No, I really appreciated that too. But to my mind, Chris Evans' character as Hugh Ransom Thromby in his fabulous sweaters. In particular, that one white cable oh, sweater. Oh, my God. So I'm great. Also, dreaming about that the, sweater. Also, the casually placed holes, which is something that really rich people do all the time. Yep. They, like, make holes in them. Or they just wear sweaters until they're worn out because they're so rich it doesn't matter that they have to look tidier. Yeah, no, exactly. It's so brilliant, too, because it's like, what do you do when you cast bulging muscles Captain America in this role? Well, you have to cover up the muscles, but boy, did they cover it up with some fantastic costumes. Although, I don't know what it says about me, but I was like, oh, man, Chris Evans, I think I'm more attracted to you in this movie than I have been in any other movie. Well, so, and that's a really funny thing, too, because I think that, in in a way, his character as the murderer in the end is a bit of a fake out because, you know, in so much Christie or at least as Christie is classically conceived, everyone's wearing a mask, right? Right. So to my mind, Ransom is a little bit like the inverse of Neville Strange in Toward Zero, who seems like the charming, nice, affable guy. And then we find out in the end that it's the ultimate mask and he's a psychopath. He's like a gibbering psychopath. Ransom is played as such 
a horrible character and just a completely unrepentant jerk from the very beginning that you're constantly waiting for that mask to drop and for him to actually perhaps be better or at least for there to be something behind it but there's not <laughs> like he's, he's actually well, really just that terrible and again, it's kind of brilliant <laughs> well again back to crooked house right josephine is terrible she's like a little monster and there's no pretending otherwise at any point in the novel and the other thing that i thought going again back to crooked house that i thought was interesting is what is the biggest lesson really that the old man doles out it's to keep tabs on anybody who wants to be especially helpful Mm -hmm. and so of course it's ransom who steps in to sort of save marta and want to know all about the crime and try to figure out well what can they do let's figure out a way to solve this situation that we're now in yeah. And, you know, it seems like charming, right? And, you know, she needs an ally. And at some level you think, well, God, he just hates his family so much. Maybe this is something he would do just out of spite. And it's really convincing, I think. It certainly convinces Marta. Totally. It's convincing to the audience, too. It's very clever. There are two titles that Ryan Johnson did reference when he was talking about inspirations for the film, Christie titles specifically, and they are Death on the Nile and Evil Under the Sun. Mm-hmm. He didn't necessarily spell this out when he was referencing them, but both of those novels rely on puzzle mysteries that are solved by lightning quick machinations down to the second when it comes to the murder plots where it's like everything has to work out exactly. There are very long explanations. The denouements because of all these complications on Poirot's part are very long at the end of those books. And that's where he actually referenced them where he said, you know, his denouement was getting really long and he kept on looking back to those books being like, it's that long in those books too, right? This is okay. Okay, good. Yeah. It was super complicated and convoluted. Okay, good. I have one sort of quibble, which is that the timing, not of the first murder, but of the second murder of Fran, the housekeeper, right. is sketchy. I don't really know if Ransom would have been able to pull it off if he was using morphine, which has been established in the world of this film, to take about 10 minutes to have its effect. The timing and the blocking of what he's doing and how he's talking with Marta right up until the point at which he's taken away by the police, and then she discovers Fran, who's not quite yet dead which is also really key for where things go from there in the plot. Like, I get why that has to be the case, but I'm not saying that it's impossible. I think it's just improbable in the same way that those down to the second plots were in Death on the Nile and Evil Under the Sun. I shouldn't even say it's a quibble. I don't really have a problem with it. I'm just noting it. I just thought that that was interesting. Although uh, the 10 minute thing, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, because as again, we find out, Harlan Thrombey actually was not poisoned. I'll be honest with you, Catherine. I don't normally figure things out ahead of time. I'm really not a very astute reader, sadly. (laughs) But I was pretty sure that there was almost like a double switcheroo, if you will, with the bottles. Right, there is. When there was so much made of that toxicology report, I was like, oh, the twist is going to be that he had no poison in his body. I definitely knew that that was going to be the case. I thought the whole time that the whole thing was orchestrated by Harlan Thrombey and he was going to be the one who hired Benoit Blanc. But I think that, no, I think that that's a reasonable conclusion, actually, that he was trying to essentially screw his family. Yeah. And saw it as an option because he was sort of dying anyway, kind of thing. Right. In that version, he would have been kind of a monster to Marta and not as nice of a person. But he actually, in fact, 
really did like her <laughs> and like was really affectionate well, toward her. Well, she's the only person, right, who's decent to him, who treats him like a person who he could talk to. Yeah. The other thing I think we should talk about, which Ryan Johnson has talked about as well, and I have to give him a lot of credit, actually, because I even pulled the quote because I appreciated it so much. He said, I think that people tend to have this misconception of Christie's books, that they were timeless and kind of sealed and locked in amber in this fantasy world. They weren't. She's very much engaged with the British culture in the moment that she's writing. She's writing from the 20s, 30s, up until like the 60s. And you can pick up any one of her books and tell what decade it's from because she's engaging with the culture. And he was saying this in the context of he did what Christie did in her time to our time, which is to say that's why we have Tony Collette being on Instagram and running this goop-like company. Right. And like the creepy alt-right tween who's a total troll on the internet. This is how he put it. He said, taking character types from 2019, the way that she was taking them from Britain in the 30s, drawing caricatures of types that can only exist today. That meant the social influencers, the lifestyle gurus, the internet trolls, all this stuff that we're very uniquely dealing with right now. It actually felt very correct in terms of paying homage to Christie to draw those out. That's a nuanced reading of Christie. And yeah, um, which I you, can, appreciate. you can tell, like, he's a true fan. He's a true fan. Oh, definitely so. I mean, there are little details in it that are delightful. I mean, Tony Collette saying, I read a tweet about a New Yorker profile of you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then Jamie Lee Curtis, right after that, merely says, I read the New Yorker article about you. <laughs> right. No, and also, I really like that Don Johnson's character says that he saw Hamilton um, when it was at the public. At the public, yes. Yep. Yes. He's like, saw it at the public. <laughs> and then he hands her the plate. There's like a lot of very funny, clever asides going on in this. You know, it is a definitively funny movie and it knows it. I also absolutely loved when Marta goes in to the sort of rendezvous where Fran is dying and Benoit Blanc sits in the car and he is really tunelessly singing along to something in his headphones. It took me like a good few seconds to realize what it was because it was so like off key perfect, Mm -hmm. but it's on time. And the funny thing is one of the other influences that I think Ryan Johnson has pointed out when he was looking to other movies like this was the last of Sheila, which Mm -hmm. is weirdly enough co-written by Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. He just wanted to get like a Sondheim reference in there. There's <laughs> sure a lot, that's just so much Sondheim and stuff this year. I don't know what that's about, but you know, I, I, I love me some Sondheim. So I think 2019 has been a very Sondheim year. Yeah. I don't mean that in a good way. <laughs> well, no, no. I, uh, I love Sondheim. I don't mean that in a bad way as to Sondheim. That says not necessarily great things about 2019 is all that I mean. I don't think there's much good to be said about 2019. But um, I loved that. I actually loved Daniel Craig in this. Oh, Just delightful. Actually, it all was, the detectives, it, I felt the worst for Lakeith Stanfield, who's an interesting actor who doesn't really have a lot to do in this. I agree. He's so good that I kept on waiting for him to do more. And he never did. No, but I also love the other detective, I'm afraid I don't know the actor's name, who turns out to be a hardcore mystery fanboy. 
Yeah, he was fantastic. And that's so Christy, too, that there's often like the main quote unquote private sleuth and then, you know, members of the police who have their own personalities and are, and are interesting and distinct. And they form this little coterie within that specific novel. And yeah, I mean, you can just tell, as I said, that he's a true fan. I mean, there was one other quote that I just want to highlight because I think it's interesting. And it's the only way that I can even say something a little bit critical about the movie, because I think there's a reason why the movie isn't an outright rave for me and perhaps for you too. But just speaking for myself, he was talking about Christie as an influence. And he said, Christie was the big one. I've read Dorothy Sayers. I've read John Dixon Carr, Conan Doyle, A.A. Milne wrote a whodunit. For me, though, I have yet to find a whodunit author who resonates with me like Christie, mostly because of the colorful characters she creates. As much as she's lauded, I feel like she's still weirdly underrated. She's so good at engaging you with these caricatures of characters who still have enough emotional resonance to draw you in. It's kind of amazing what she does. I could not agree more with everything he's saying. It's fantastic that he's saying that. However, right. my my issue is with the word caricature, which he also used in the previous quote that I highlighted. And I think that there is a sense in this movie that these characters, though they are entertaining and even three-dimensional and complex and interesting, they are caricatures. They do feel like caricatures. And I don't know if in some of the best Christie, at least as I experience it as a reader, if I would agree with the statement that she's creating caricatures of characters. I actually think she's creating characters. And to me, if this movie perhaps did have characters as opposed to caricatures of characters as well done as it is, maybe that would have been the extra step that I needed for it to completely fully resonate with me. Maybe not. I'm really speculating there, but it's the only it's the only issue. I can take with either the movie or any of the kind of secondary material I've read around it in terms of Ryan Johnson interviews in the, in the press and whatnot. I think Marta is a relatively good character. She is. She's kind of the moral center of the story. But I think in the best Christie, I mean, let's just use your beloved Five Little Pigs, our number one. Would you call any of those people caricatures? I wouldn't. No, I don't think so. That's the thing. I mean, I, would you call anyone in and then there were none caricatures? I actually wouldn't. Um, It's extreme. The situation is extreme and ridiculous, but the characters aren't in the text. In the text. I mean, no, I suppose there is some sense in which like an Emily Brent is a little bit of a caricature of a sort of penny pinching lady of a certain age. Right. I mean, something I like mean, that, I think, borders on caricature. I think I know what he means, and it's something that even, I think it was Robert Barnard got at in his book about Christie, where he said that there's something elemental about the way that Christie writes, is as if she's creating myths as opposed to stories. Well, like, she, these characters are, they're stock, but in a good way, well, because they're, they're, they're so they're elemental and fundamental, types. right? They're types, right? And so, yeah. you know, if we see an actress in a Christie, you kind of know at least some of what you're going to get. Unless you're reading Crooked House. It's a bit of a simplification, but you know what? It's like you have to simplify when you're doing a billion interviews for press around a movie, so I don't even fault him for it. But to call what Christie's doing, even as you're saying that it's amazing caricatures of characters, I think is a gross oversimplification of what she's doing. That's all. Yeah. Even though they have caricature qualities in Knives Out, they are very specifically done caricatures. Yeah, no, they're totally agree. And by the way, I even think that there are many Christie stories that do have characters 
caricatures of characters, if we want to put it that way, populated throughout the novel. Sometimes there are more of them than in others. Sometimes it's maybe only one or two. Maybe it's all of them, most of them, whatever. And there still can be a wit and a zest and a complexity to the creation of those caricatures of characters. And I would say that for this movie as as well, but it's just more complicated than that. There's so much to the of, and she's doing so many different things that I think the reason why she's so popular is not just because of what he's identifying. I think she's doing, she is doing that sometimes, but I think she's also doing more than that. And I think her enduring popularity, it lies on something a bit more complicated and wider ranging. Obviously, I think you can tell from this level of engagement that we both enjoyed and appreciated this film. I don't even really have that many things to change about it. I mean, I, I noted this on Twitter and our dear friend Mark Aldridge chimed in and said that more than one person that said the same thing to him. But I went with two people who I thought when we were watching the movie that they both enjoyed it. And then we walked out. They were both like, and I was a little bit flabbergasted. How do you dislike anything about the movie? I mean, again, I think that you can say it's not a masterpiece, but the idea of there being anything dislikable about it, I fundamentally don't understand. And one of the things that was commented on was that they found it incredibly irksome that you see what happens very early on. They were like, well, that's not very Christie-esque. And I was like, that's not entirely true. It wouldn't be Christie-esque if we saw everything. That happened early on. But we only see a piece and a very misleading piece at that. I would direct your film going friends to the ABC murders. It's exactly what she does there. Right. The thing is that works really well about this is essentially what you're dealing with is an opportunist. And I think that you can get a lot of fair play out of that. And Christy has written her share of opportunists into the text. This was not like a carefully plotted murder that they were working for, you know, a year to like work out. Or as Chris Evans says later, you know, um, in for a penny, in for a pound. (laughs) As he grabs a fake knife and (laughs) tries to stab Marta to death. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I mean, cards on the table Mm -hmm. and taken at the flood. Yeah. Two outlandish scenarios in which murders are committed on the spur of the moment. And because of the fact that they are committed with very little forethought, we can swallow a lot, right? You have to sell the characters that they would do that. And in both of those novels, she does. And I think in this movie, sweaters and all, Brian Johnson and Chris Evans sold it. The second murder is murder, but the original murder. It was an attempted murder and an unintended suicide or not even unintended. It was like a prophylactic suicide. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) a misconstrued suicide, a, a confused suicide. Yeah, that kind of a weirdo outcome where you're like, oh, my God, this is so much weirder than I expected it to be. Like, that's so Christy. You know, the fact that the explanation is bizarre, but totally makes sense. It's a great film. Yeah, it's delightful. I am very tempted to go see it again, as you know, because I think that there are probably details that can be picked up on subsequent viewing. I think that the uh, set design alone really deserves extra viewing because the house is so intricate. Wonderful set design. And for that matter, for a contemporary set movie, I thought the costume design overall was fantastic. We talked about the sweaters. 
But Jamie Lee Curtis's power suits mm-hmm. are just spectacular. All of what Tony Collette is wearing is everything. Just- Tony Collette is wearing. Yeah. But totally convincingly contemporary, even though it's so ridiculously over the top. It doesn't feel like they wanted to actually do period and it was awkwardly put in modern day. Like this is set in modern day. It's just insane. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just like, I think it's one of those things where, you know, the things that get awarded at awards ceremonies tend to be giant costume pictures. But the mm-hmm. costuming of this movie just gives you so much information about the characters and about the setting and about their money. You know, you could just read so much into it based on just the costuming choices alone. You know, if you're going to talk about setting and tone, as we do on this podcast, the setting and mm-hmm. tone are just, just fantastic. Top notch, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> it immediately at least throws it into the classic whodunit movie category. Oh, 100%. This is up there with Murder by Death and Clue. No question. When this is on TV, however long from now, whenever this is on TV, I will stop and watch it. Oh, for sure. It's absolutely one of those. Watch it on a plane. If it's on a screen in front of me, I will be happy and I will continue to watch it. Yeah, and I mean, that is one of the nicer things you can say, because I can't say that about a lot of movies. Yeah. No, and a lot of movies that I know I should like and should want to watch again and marinate in most of them. I really don't want to. It's a rare thing to want to do the repeat viewings and live with a movie and make it part of your life. All right. Well, that is what's basically turned into a rave of (laughs) Knives Out, written and directed by Ryan Johnson. We did mention that Patreon episode that we had done about Murder by Death and Clue. So if you would like to hear more about those movies in conjunction with Knives Out or just on their own, because they are also gems of the whodunit spoof subgenre, visit us at patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We will be back next time with our novel episode, They Came to Baghdad. Get excited, Catherine. Intriguing. And you can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And if you enjoyed this little mini episode and or you tend to enjoy our episodes, please take a moment and rate and review us. Help other people find the podcast. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.